You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of the 1208 Podcast, the midweek edition. And this week, things are going to get strange once again. But this time, it's not going to be supernaturally strange. It's going to be humanly strange. The stories that uh, we're going to talk about today, well, really it's one story, but it happens three times. And so there's little differences in each. But Abraham has this story happen to him twice And then we get to his son, Isaac, and Isaac repeats the same thing that his father did. And we're going to read it, and it's going to sound strange to us from a lot of different uh, areas. Uh, And we might find ourselves thinking, oh, well, maybe that was just culture back then. And for sure, there are some cultural reasons as to why these stories happen the way they do. But I think part of the reason that they're going to feel strange is because the Bible is giving us the space to realize that uh, Abraham and Isaac are less than perfect in these stories. In fact, uh, I think we could say, like, the Bible gives us a space to see spiritual, moral, uh, human weakness in the actions that they decide to make in these trilogy of stories, okay? So, with that being said, um, I want to pause for a minute before we even read it, because here's a problem that a lot of modern-day Bible readers have. They they read the Bible, and the Bible often doesn't make commentary on some of its own narrative stories. And so, you finish the story, and you even see, like, somehow blessing comes out of that story and you're like, oh, well, I I guess God set that all up or that was the will of God that that would go like that. And I don't think the Bible's presenting that to us. God does have a way, as the Bible says, to work all things together for our good. Um, But uh, these stories, I think the Bible is expecting you to raise an eyebrow. It's expecting, without giving you commentary about this being off, being less than perfect, being wrong, it's expecting you to be like, "Mm, Abraham, you you fell a little little short here. So um, this is the, uh, let me read really quick. It's the introduction to the book of Judges from Eugene Peterson's translation of the message. I know you're like, how (laughs) Judges is way far away. What are you doing over there? Um, I just want to read a, a quote that's always stood out for me, uh, to me from Peterson when he establishes what Judges is all about, because he talks about how the Bible doesn't make commentary on itself. And I just think he captures it well. So everything that I just said, let me say it now with Peterson's words. Sex and violence, rape and massacre, brutality and deceit do not seem to be congenial materials for use in developing a story of salvation. Given the Bible's subject matter, God and salvation, living well and loving deeply, we quite naturally expect to find in its pages leaders for us who are good, noble, honorable men and women showing us the way. So it is always something of a shock to enter the pages of the book of Judges and find ourselves immersed in nearly unrelieved mayhem. 
it might not gravel our sensibilities so much if these flawed and reprobate reprobate leaders were held up as negative moral examples with lurid hellfire descriptions of the punishing consequences of living such bad lives. But the story is not quite that way. It's not told quite that way. There is a kind of matter of fact indifference in the tone of the narration, almost as if God is saying, well, if this all if this is all you're going to give me to work with, I'll use these men and women just as they are and get on with working out the story of salvation. These people are even given a measure of dignity as they find their place in the story. They're most certainly not employed for the sake of vilification or lampoon. God, it turns out, does not require good people in order to do good work. He can and does with us. Uh, sorry, he can and does work with us in whatever moral and spiritual condition he finds us. God, we are learning, does some of his best work using the most unlikely people. If God found a way to significantly include these leaders and judges in what we know is on its way to becoming a glorious conclusion, he can certainly use us along with our sometimes impossible friends and neighbors. Okay, so what I just read to you, again, introduction to the book of Judges, I know, but take that introduction and just apply it to the entire narrative of the Bible, because what you're going to find throughout, especially in the Old Testament, is you come across these like key leaders, like the fathers of the very faith, like Abraham, the guy who God started with. And because God's chosen them, because he's pulled them out, you're like, he's the one, he's got it all together, he's he's perfect. But then you dive a little deeper and you're like, hmm, seems like they kind of missed the boat right there. But again, because the Bible doesn't stop and say like, oh, Abraham really messed up, didn't he? You're just kind of left thinking, oh, well, I guess he was a great guy, and I just don't understand how morality works, and uh, <laughs> uh, God was cool with it. But that's not the case. You, you have to understand God works with people where they're at. E- even think of Abraham, okay? So from previous weeks, we need to recall Abraham lived with, uh, you know, in, in a world filled with all kinds of little G gods. He was pulled out of that world. And so he's very uh, um, affected by the culture that he once was a part of. So let's read today's story and let's just start seeing that Abraham is human. He was not just pulled out of heaven perfect as he was. Just because he's a forefather does not mean he is therefore everything that uh, God ever wanted him to be. And today, which is one of, you know, our first stories about Abraham, we see um, we see flaws. So let's dive in. Genesis 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And uh, right there, you can uh, already see uh, an allusion back to a, a message we preached around Christmas time. If you want to go back, look for um, our message on refugees. Sojourn right there is often a word in the Bible that makes us think of refugees, because that's kind of what Abraham's doing right here, right? I bring this up because it's such a hot topic today. You know, people are like, should we take care of refugees? Shouldn't we? Well, we see in the Bible, Jesus was a refugee. We see right here that Abraham had to take refuge somewhere else. As the JPS commentary on Genesis says, uh, the word sojourn indicates temporary residence. 
It says, everywhere in the Near East, the resident alien was without legal rights and protection and was wholly dependent upon the goodwill of the local community. In biblical texts, the juror, that is sojourner, is usually classified along with the deprived and underprivileged of society, such as an orphan and the widow, whom it is forbidden to oppress and to whose needs one must be particularly sensitive. So right there, you get kind of a biblical image of caring about refugees, caring about people who need help, which is exactly what Abraham was going through. Um, He's got a famine. He leaves and he sojourns for a place of refuge in uh, Egypt. So just want to point that out as we get to know Abraham a little bit here. Your forefather of, of eventually the Christian faith had to take refuge himself. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram, And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with a great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is it you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, Here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, this right here is a very intriguing story. Again, you were not given any commentary about this being like a negative thing, necessarily. Uh, What you were given was just a straight, flat-out story about how Abraham basically did not... uh, care enough to protect his wife from persecution that might come on her, but rather took it on himself. Now, I don't know. You know, we weren't there. Maybe the two of them agreed that this was the best course of action that they could pursue um, and and whatnot. But, you know, it, it doesn't paint Abraham in like a noble kind of husband light, right? Where it's like, no, I... I would die for you, my wife. (laughs) I I would take this on. We'll we'll make it. We'll be okay. Rather, Abraham comes in afraid. He's scared. So scared that he jumps to this conclusion that, like, my wife is super beautiful. And as soon as they see me, they're going to be like, we want her, but she's taken, so kill that guy so we can have her. And that's just the assumption that he jumps to right from the very beginning. The the cruel irony being that these Egyptians actually seem a little more moral and holy than Abraham himself, because when they figure this out, it doesn't seem like they ever had that in their mind, you know, to ever like steal his wife. Instead, they're like, why didn't you tell us? Why wouldn't you tell us that? We, we don't... <laughs> We don't want to marry your wife. So it's an interesting kind of flip to see that the Egyptians are the ones who actually uh, 
are thinking a, a little more clearly and and acting a little more morally right here in this picture. Um, and it catches us off guard. And there's a lot of other questions that make you wonder, you know, how irrational was Abraham? Uh, because, look, I get it. His wife was very beautiful. The Bible says that right there. Uh, she was a woman, beautiful in appearance. But she was 65 at this point. So <laughs> there at least is a little bit of question here where we're like, not that she wouldn't be beautiful. Uh, and, you know, some commentaries say, like, the fact that she would have been uh, um, kind of like a foreigner in an Egyptian land, that there's something about uh, foreign beauty that they would have especially taken a liking to. So culturally, yeah, there, Abraham's probably afraid for certain um, reasons that uh, uh, he would have understood but she is still 65, you know? And I'm trying to imagine Pharaoh, whatever his age, being like, ah, yes, this woman who's old enough to be a grandma <laughs> several times over, uh, she's just so gorgeous, I, I want her for my wife. Now, uh, actually, it's interesting. When the Bible does, the Bible rarely comments on what people look like. Uh, and so when it does comment it's often setting us up to realize something's going to go wrong. Uh, I know that sounds weird, but anytime the Bible has to pause to, to say like, hey, look, this, this person was really good looking. They were handsome. They were beautiful. You usually know like the upcoming story is going to be like, okay, so this is going to go in a very bad direction or a sexually um, oriented direction. And that's exactly what we see going here. Uh, this pharaoh wants to add uh, um, add this 65-year-old woman into his harem of other ladies, right? And so that's, that's what he does. It even seems like maybe he made like an agreement with Abraham. Um, and this just kind of makes it like even more <laughs> confusing and feeling even more immoral, right? It seems like he made an agreement with Abraham as though like, all right, well, uh, if I'm going to take her as my wife, then I'm going to give you an exchange, kind of like a dowry. I'll give you some gifts uh, as the exchange because this was kind of the ancient way of of marriages is you give someone gifts as a partnership in exchange for um, the the wife that's being given over to this this guy uh, that that was ancient practice because in this story Abraham gets sheep oxen male donkeys male servants female servants female donkeys and camels he gets all these things he gets loaded he gets rich off of a lie <laughs> you know and then when it's all over like Pharaoh's so afraid because God has stepped into this and afflicted his house. He's just like, whatever, take the things that I've given you, get out of here. And then Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So in the end, Abraham even like takes off with all of Pharaoh's stuff, and Pharaoh didn't even keep the uh, keep his new wife as an exchange in this. So with all that being said, you know, uh, you, you just see this story in a different light. Sarah is treated, uh, quite frankly, in a very sexist way where 
Abraham puts his feelings first, um, puts his desire to be okay first. Uh, the Bible doesn't show us like, oh, I've got this great concern that some other guy might sleep around with you. Rather, he's just going to fake it, you know, like, well, I guess you'll just have to, you know, I'm, I'm reading into this. The Bible doesn't tell us like their conversations or anything like that, but it does give us the space to think like he had to be okay with that. Or he eventually had to accept that as like, I guess maybe the greater good out of two choices of evil. I don't know. Either way, it's a decision he made, and we're just kind of left uh, a little appalled. So his wife is beautiful, and he knows that this is going to be a problem. Um, when he gets around places where other people might uh, desire her and kill him for her. Okay, so we've got that down. One last part of the story that uh, we should probably hit on. Um because I don't think we have really addressed it in the past two podcasts. Uh, he he went with like a, the lie that he tells is also like a truth. It's like a half truth. It's part of the, the genius to Abraham's lie. Abraham is married to his half sister. That's uh, who Sarah is. So they have a different mother, but the same father. Like I said, Abraham was brought out of a different culture that lived differently than God's expectations. And apparently in that culture, it was reasonable to marry inside your family. But the Bible's later is going to talk about uh, how that is incest and his followers aren't to practice incestual relationships. And so here we have... <laughs> the the forefather of all of you know our faith he's married to his his half sister um now you know when i read my bible before that i used to just look at that i was like oh i guess that was just a cultural way of doing things back then and obviously it was in abraham's family or wherever he was brought out of but that doesn't mean that the bible was therefore cool with this uh, if you were to go to the law, as I was just mentioning, the law is going to talk about how incestuous marriage is, is not okay. And in fact, it's actually got a pretty strong punishment uh, recorded in the law for someone living out an incestuous marriage. If we were to check out Leviticus 20.17, it says, If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. So right there, you, you, know, you, you see that <laughs> the Bible in its fullness understood that this was not a way that people were supposed to be living. Yet at the same time, you've got this story where it's not uh, giving any commentary on the way they're living. It just says that, hey, Abraham was married to his half-sister, and here's what he did when he was afraid. Uh, again, when you look at the Bible in its fullness, you're like, okay, so the Bible expects us to read into these stories and understand, like, you know, it may be... Maybe Abraham lived that way because for him it was cultural, but Abraham was less than perfect by living in this way. Okay, so that is one story that uh, we have read, and yet we see God step in 
and take care of these people that he has promised uh, the nations to. Uh, and even though they make this huge mistake when when Abraham just gives his sister slash wife away, um, God still still steps in and takes care of them. In, in this case, in this particular story, um, we saw that uh, uh, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So in this case, when God intervened, it was plagues. We don't exactly know what those uh, plagues are. Um, The Bible doesn't go into great detail there. Uh, But as to why they might have thought these plagues would be of God, uh, let me quote from the IVP Bible background commentary. says, The assumption in the ancient world is that all disease is a reflection of the displeasure of a god or gods. Infectious disease could be coped with through purification and sacrifice and might be treated with herbal medicines. But the root cause was viewed as divine, not physical. Thus, disease was considered the direct result of sin or some violation of custom, so the ancients would seek to determine which god might be responsible and how he might be appeased. Medicinal remedies would be augmented by magical remedies and incantations. So right here you see... uh, in some way or another, people are getting sick and they're able to discern it's because Abraham's God, Yahweh, is afflicting them and they're able to discern it's because, well, Sarah is Abraham's wife. think that we would not run into this again. It's a very strange story. But as I said, this is one in a trilogy of stories. So if we were to fast forward into Genesis 20, which is well into the Abraham uh, uh, story, believe it or not, we come across it all over again. In, 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 in like a little more detail this time, but like it's the same story. So let me read it. Genesis 20, starting in Genesis 21. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned. So again, he seems to be taking refuge, or at least he doesn't have all of the, uh, all of the um, citizenship that uh, other people might have. So he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his uh, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream at night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech, I was saying that wrong before, sorry. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? 
Did he himself, did, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. All right, so like I said, same story happens again. Abraham shows up, and he's like, "Uh, she's my sister. And (laughs) apparently... Apparently, Sarah goes along with it, but this time she's not 65, and and the Bible doesn't say this time that that she's beautiful even. So, um, you you gotta wonder, like, why is Abraham walking into this? If the reason last time is because his wife was beautiful and he just knew she was going to be snatched up, and the Bible this time doesn't make mention of her being beautiful. And the Bible has said before this this particular story that she is not 65 anymore, but now she is 95? <laughs> 95! This is like someone's great-great-great-grandma. Why on earth does Abraham walk into this scenario still afraid that someone is going to kill him and take his 95-year-old wife who no longer has a descriptive word of being very beautiful. It's not to say that she wasn't. Maybe she just had some incredible beauty, uh, even in her oldest of old age. But one way or another, (laughs) he's just finding himself still completely nervous and still putting his wife at at risk for the sake of his own nerves. It's, It's not the greatest impression we take away of Abraham in this story. Uh, correction, I think I said she was 95. She's actually pushing 90. She's almost 90 at this point. Uh, which does leave us with a question, though. Why did this guy want to marry her? If it wasn't for some kind of unnatural beauty, why? Uh, the answer, I would imagine, is because of all the stuff that Abraham has, you know? Um, an ancient way of of kind of making alliances was giving people away in in marriages. So there's a possibility right here that yes, out of Abraham's fear, he goes ahead and does this this little uh, lie of his. But it's possible on Abimelech's side that he's like, well, I can make an alliance with this Abraham guy. He's got all this stuff. He's clearly um, a person of influence. So yeah, we'll kind of make this marital alliance. I'll take on this person he says is his sister. So that that probably would be the reason I would imagine. Um, but yeah, that's that story playing out again. But God steps in once again. This time we have more detail. This time it's in a dream. God says, hey, <laughs> stop it. This this is not your, your uh, um, spouse. This is Abraham's spouse. And uh, we actually see once again that is the outsider, the person who's not necessarily following Yahweh, who's like, oh, wow, sorry, I, I had good intentions. I had no idea. This guy told me. 
this person following you told me that this was his sister. I thought it was fine. And, uh, and God even like responds like, yeah, I saw the integrity of your heart and I saw the innocence. I, I, I know what happened. Um, and then God goes on to say, uh, that he's kept him, um, from sinning against him. So in other words, not only has God given him this dream to stop what's happening, recognizing that Abimelech still has a choice. He could still sleep with her or whatever. Uh, but God says, if you do that, I truly, you know, you will die if you do that. Um, so then what was the other way in which the Bible says that he was kept from sinning, uh, against Abraham and Sarah, that Abimelech was kept from sinning in, in a sexual kind of way. Well, if we were to fast forward to verse 17 and 18, um, we see that God heals Abimelech and also heals his wife and female slaves so that they bear children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So in some way, there seems to be some kind of, I don't know, uh, impotence here, uh, some kind of sexual inability, whether it's to perform or whether it's just people aren't getting pregnant and they're picking up on this. Uh, one way or another, this is a part of the reason uh, that um, that Abimelech is able to discern something's wrong, and God has says, like, I, I've done these things to keep you from sinning against me. So that's, that's part of it. Um, one of the other things that I want to mention in this particular passage, because this is really interesting to me, uh, right here we have the first mention of a prophet in the Bible, and it's given to Abraham. It says, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Abraham is a prophet. And not only is Abraham a prophet, but he's a healer. This is interesting. So that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die and you and all who are yours. And then at the end, as we just quoted, we see Abraham pray for him and we see they're cured. They're healed which is just really amazing to me because, you know, we talk about uh, the gift of healing in the church today. You want to know how old that gift is? Like, go all the way back to Genesis 20, and here you have not only the gift of, of uh, prophecy or someone called to the office of a prophet, Abraham, right in this passage, but you also see healing at, at play here. He prays to God, and it's by you know, this intervention on this prophet's behalf coming before Yahweh, that uh, this man ends up getting healed, that Abimelech gets healed. So just interesting that you run across that all the way 20 chapters into Genesis. All right, let's continue this story before we move on to the third. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. I love this. It's, again, the outsider morally lecturing the insider, the one who follows Yahweh, right? So, again, the Bible's really kind of showing it without the specific commentary that he did something wrong. It's like, can you imagine <laughs> the outsider, the the pagan is lecturing the forefather of our faith, right? You, you got you to gotta sense these things while you're reading through it. And Abimelech said to Abraham, 
What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Again, slow clap. Looking real great, Abraham. <laughs> right? Uh, it's just, it's kind of off. He's hes the one putting this upon his wife. Do this as a kindness to me. Um, not, not super noble. Uh, story continues. Then, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver as a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Again, the guy you think is the outsider, acting more like a follower of God than the insider is. Uh, it's just a very strange story. Again, uh, you know, uh, I, I've heard stories recently of like uh, money coming into businesses. When you trace the money far back, you're like, wow, this money has, this is dirty money. And these like good things of God, <laughs> like uh, institutions that teach people about God are actually born upon the the corruptive money of an old sin that happened long ago. Well, here you have that story kind of too, you know, like Abraham has a lot of wealth. He's got a lot of agricultural stuff in his possession. He's got servants in his possession and he's got money. Where does this all come from? Well, it's born out of a lie. It's kind of corrupt money in some sense. So there you go. Uh, it's, it's not a new thing. It goes all the way back here as well. Now, you would think that this would be the end of it, but like father, like son, we move into the story of Isaac, and suddenly we see this whole thing play out once again. So let's take one last look at the story while we're walking through our, our trilogy, and here's what it says. So Isaac settled in Gerar, which is where we just were, right? When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Again, the rare descriptive word about uh, uh, a person in the Bible setting us up for a story of kind of 
sexual in nature and how it's going to lead to something bad. She's attractive, and now uh, we're just going to see Isaac do exactly what his father did. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. <laughs> it's, it's hard not to pause for a minute and laugh for poor King Abimelech, <laughs> who has now gone through this twice. He's got to be thinking, what the heck is wrong with this family? Every time they show up, they're pretending their their spouses are their sisters, <laughs> and uh, this story is the same. You know, it's 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 segueing us out of Abraham's story and fully into Isaac's story, but it's uh it's showing us the same habits coming up once again. Um, a few things to to point out about this one. It's it's got to at least be a little nicer for Abimelech here that uh, they caught on to it uh, before anyone took the attractive Rebecca. They realize that this is in fact um, Isaac's wife. So he then like put out that stern warning: nobody is going to touch this lady. This family's crazy. I don't know what's wrong with them. Uh, but uh, the reason that he catches on to it is because after um, Rebecca and Isaac have been there for a while, it says Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife. Now, the word there for laughing uh, gets translated a lot of different ways in uh, um, different uh translations throughout the Bible, uh, and it becomes clear just from the different ways that Bible writers are trying to interpret this word, metzahok. Uh, it just becomes clear that this word uh, in some way is is not just like innocent laughing as though that's all that's really going on here. In fact, let's, let's take a look at some of the ways in which uh, Bible translators translate this word. Let's see here. We've got uh, God's Word translation. Saw Isaac caressing his wife. Uh, King James Version. Isaac was sporting with Rebecca, his wife. The <laughs> uh, Lexham English Bible. Uh, Isaac was fondling Rebecca, his wife. Uh, fondling, sporting, caressing. Uh, Isaac holding his wife, Rebecca, tenderly. It's a new century version. Uh, the New International Reader's version saw Isaac hugging and kissing his wife, Rebecca. You know, y you could go on here. Uh, it just becomes clear, though perhaps the most least clear. One of the <laughs> There's a few translations that opt to say, um, they saw Isaac making love to his wife, which I don't think they actually meant sex, but you're supposed to kind of understand the audience you're translating for when you say making love. 
well, that's kind of an English idiom right there. So um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have gone that far. Uh, but one way or another, Isaac is seen laughing with his wife, if you want to be literal, um, but laughing in such a way that it is implying uh, something much more going on. So like in the ESV, which I've been reading from, uh, it gets translated laugh, laughed, laughing. Uh, he's jesting, play, entertained. These are words that go together. The particular sense in which this Hebrew word is felt here in the ESV, though, in uh, um, Genesis 26, 8, where we're currently at, would be to flirt, to flirt. So even though we use the word laughing here in the ESV, we still understand, like, there's more going on than just laughing, which obviously Abimelech picked up on, right? You don't look out a window and be like, ah, those two are laughing. They're married. <laughs> but uh, the Bible often um, uses euphemisms or other kinds of words when it comes to things that are somewhat sexual in nature. The Bible doesn't uh, um, use a lot of—it does paint sexual pictures when it needs to consult the Song of Songs or Song of Songs for more information on that. But uh, it often uses a lot of kind of like induendo to to make its point. So whatever way you'd want to go with this, it is some kind of laughing and some kind of uh, um, marital flirty kind of way. You'll see this laughter word kind of show up again uh, with the story of Potiphar's wife and Joseph when uh, Potiphar's wife calls the men of her household together in 39.14. She says, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Uh, and she's accusing him there of doing something sexual in nature with her. Therefore, you can see how Genesis 39.14 is using the same kind of innuendo, laughing and something sexual in nature kind of going together. Whether you'd want to take that in the direction of fondling, kissing, hugging, something else. You know, that's that's kind of where you can only know so much. Uh, one last thing I want to mention, though, about uh, this word laughing is that, well, that's what Isaac's name means. If you were to rewind when Isaac is born in Genesis 21, Sarah... Uh, bears Isaac, and then Genesis 21, 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over, over me. And if you just kind of zoom in on what the name Isaac means, you come across the fact that it means he laughs. So what's, what's super funny to me here is uh, one of the ways that you could kind of translate this, because uh, part of the word for Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife, there's a uh, it's kind of a play on the word Isaac, so it could be uh, to point out from the New American Commentary, uh, you could say that Isaac was Isaacing with Rebecca, his wife. Isaacing. So there you go. I, that that itself sounds kind of weird, but if you needed another window, I don't know if that was intentionally meant to go that way, but nonetheless, you, you find the strange... Strange phrase. Isaac was Isaacing with his wife. Okay, so with all that, we've now looked over uh, these stories and kind of experienced a strange trilogy 
of faults in your your spiritual forefathers, the people who God chose, which if you need a spiritual takeaway, know this. It, it actually goes back to what we already read from Eugene Peterson. I'll just quote it again as we close out here, actually. God, it turns out, does not require good people in order to do good work. He can and does work with us in whatever moral and spiritual condition he finds us. God, we are learning, does some of his best work using the most unlikely people. If God found a way to significantly include these leaders in what we know is on its way to become a glorious conclusion, he can certainly use us along with our sometimes impossible friends and neighbors. We've only seen just a little bit of Abraham's flaws, and we'll continue to see that in pretty much everyone who stars in the the uh, Bible story throughout uh, the rest of our continuation through it. So with that, um, there's your little lesson for today, and we'll catch back up with Abraham and Sarah next week on the Midweek Podcast. <laughs>